Welcome to Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host, Camden Bird, and I'm an assistant professor of history at Eastern Illinois University. I'm very excited to introduce my guest today, Dr. Sasha Maria Suarez. Dr. Sasha Maria Suarez is a direct descendant of the White Earth Nation of Ojibwe, is an assistant professor in history and American Indian studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her work focuses on Ojibwe urban placemaking and the gendered nature of community building in Minneapolis in the 20th century. She is here to discuss her essay titled Indigenizing Minneapolis, Building American Indian Community Infrastructure in the Mid-20th Century. Dr. Suarez's essay appeared in a collection of essays just recently published from the University of Oklahoma Press titled Indian Cities, Histories of Indigenous Urbanization, which was edited by Kent Blancet, Kathleen Cahill, and Andrew Needham. You know, I know you are here to discuss this particular essay, uh, which I really enjoyed reading, and I want to make sure we get uh, to it. But I also want to talk a little bit about the collection as a whole. Your piece is part of a group of essays that explore uh, indigenous urbanization in American history. Um, it's a great collection. I'm, I'm curious if you might be willing to talk about its place uh, in the larger historiographical trajectory of indigenous and urban history. And I know you're not the editor of this collection, so I don't expect you to speak for them. But I'd be curious to hear how you see yourself fitting into this sort of larger, um, this larger move that this collection's trying to get at, um, and filling in some of the the historiographical needs of the discipline. Yeah, the collection itself, I think, is really groundbreaking in a lot of ways. A lot of the literature around indigenous peoples and urban spaces typically has centered primarily around the post-war years, nineteen fifties, sixties. Uh, which really, you know, leaves out a lot of history, which the editors of the volume, Kent Lancet, Kathleen Cahill, and Andrew Needham have all kind of pointed to, especially in the introduction, the the ways that Native people are written out of urban spaces in American history and kind of uh, positioned as outside of this American experiment of urbanization. And the general lack of conversation historically around the longevity of not just American Indians and cities, but American Indian cities themselves has really positioned a lot of the field to think about the ways that Native people interacted with urban spaces in the latter half of the 20th century. The collection overall, I think, does a really good job of going really wide chronologically and geographically uh, to think about the ways that Native people moved through American city spaces, which of course had previously been in some cases their homelands or how they interacted with these spaces as visitors coming into these city spaces for political reasons often or economic reasons. My work is kind of situated, especially in the chapter uh, in Indian cities. Primarily a lot of the detail is in the late 20th century. But my work specifically is examining the longer trajectory of community building that existed in Minneapolis specifically prior to the relocation era in the 1950s and 60s and how there was Native community, which has often been described as very small, often as super assimilated, and how that actually is a misreading of what was happening among Native community in Minneapolis, specifically Ojibwe community in the city itself. And I see my work kind of fitting in to address a much longer 20th century urban indigenous experience. Mm. Whereas 
as I stated previously, a lot of the literature around urban indigenous indigenous experience has been focused in those post-war years following World War II. It leaves out the fact that Native people were moving in growing numbers prior to and during World War II uh, and what that meant when you get this huge boom in Indigenous populations in cities across the country. Yeah. Um, and, and you're right. You know, that collection is, it, it does span quite a bit and it's, there's so many compelling essays in there. And, and before, maybe before we jump into uh, sort of the, the, the particulars of your essay, and you sort of hinted at this in your previous answer, um, I, I'm wondering, you know, just for, for, for our listeners sake and, and, and just sort of exploring sort of where, where this research come from, so I, you know, what led you to want to explore sort of American Indian community building in mid 20th century uh, Minneapolis? Yeah, so this project, which was actually part of my dissertation project, um, really comes from a much longer personal history that I have being White Earth Ojibwe, whose family moved in the 1950s to the city and having been, at this point, the second generation in my family to grow up in Minneapolis, I always had, of course, a connection, a strong connection to Native community in Minneapolis. And as I kind of went through college and went through undergrad, I started examining, in particular, what I think a lot of people examine, which is the AIM years in Minneapolis. But I kept wondering, well, they certainly didn't you know, pop up out of nowhere. That just doesn't make sense. And I started wondering what existed before AIM, because clearly the literature was saying there was a small Native community here, then it grew into a larger Native community, then AIM was founded. And that's kind of the trajectory. And then all of the discussion around organizing happens with AIM onward in Minneapolis. And so I started digging and I started finding in particular, white earth Ojibwe women who had moved to the cities throughout the early 20th century, or in some cases were born there, and how they were really integral in providing space for Native community at a time when there weren't Indian centers and resources available to urban Native people. And so in a lot of ways, my project is kind of an unfolding of my own community's history, both in terms of the urban Native community of Minneapolis, but also the ways that white earth Ojibwe people and women in particular uh, contributed to what remains today a really flourishing, vibrant indigenous community. Yeah. And, and of course, you note uh, in your essay and, and, and in your answers here, right. That, you know, Minneapolis or, or the, the, the site of Minneapolis today, right. Has long been home to uh, indigenous peoples and, and you, you make, clear to point out that this is a history of re-indigenizing uh, the space of that city, right? And I'm wondering, you know, without, you know, we, you know, we could have a series of podcasts about a long history, but I, I could give us a brief overview of sort of the, the larger indigenous history of that era, uh, of that area, in order to help us understand sort of the context of your piece, uh, and, and also sort of the importance of that uh, re-indigenization process. Yeah, for me, It's very important as an Ojibwe person to acknowledge that my experiences as an urban Ojibwe person, all of that is occurring on Dakota homelands. Mm -hmm. Um, This is something that is happening much more commonly in the field these days where people are acknowledging and trying to come to terms with what it means to have urban indigenous histories exist on homelands that other nations have been displaced from, dispossessed from. For the Twin Cities area and 
for much of the state of Minnesota, Dakota people have a very traumatic history in relationship to how the state was settled, how the city was founded of Minneapolis, as well as St. Paul, particularly because for Dakota people, uh, the Twin Cities is really kind of the point of genesis, the point of origin, Dakota creation stories, position Bedote, which is the confluence of the Minnesota and Mississippi rivers as an extremely sacred site. And of course that area, which is now part of Fort Snelling, uh, has been in many ways tainted by the kinds of colonization that Dakota people have experienced, particularly in the 19th century during periods of rapid urban expansion uh, and also the ways that colonization was trying to force Dakota people to behave in a way that they felt uh, coincided with American goals. And in particular, the most important part to acknowledge for the Twin Cities is that Dakota people were removed. Um, and then following the U.S.-Dakota War of 1862, they were forcibly and legally exiled, not just from the Twin Cities, but from the entire state of Minnesota. So they were exiled from their homelands. They were forced to leave. Many found ways to stay. Many returned. But it's a continual returning process. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Dakota people, I articulate it as a re-indigenization of the Minneapolis landscape because it is their homelands. And they are returning. Whereas for Ojibwe people... It's really about placemaking in an urban space, creating space for Ojibwe community and culture to persist despite colonial uh, impositions. And so there's two very different things happening while Dakota and Ojibwe people are working together. And it's important to acknowledge for me that the history I'm telling is coming from a very particular perspective that is different than Dakota perspectives of what Mm -hmm. urbanization looked like for them in the 20th century as they're as they're returning to their homelands mm-hmm. yeah yeah thank you for that and and, and and as you point out right much of your essay does focus on particularly the the white earth ojibwe community building uh in minneapolis uh and and you you in particular you focus on the the lives and efforts of uh a few key individuals uh winnie jordan and, and emily peak um, I'm wondering if you might be willing to give the li- listeners a brief overview of these individuals uh, and perhaps let us know why they help us to understand this earlier period of community building in Minneapolis. Yeah, I'll try to keep it brief. <laughs> um, uh, I'll start with Winnie Jordan, who by all accounts was really kind of viewed as the godmother or grandmother of the urban native community of Minneapolis throughout much of the 20th century. She was from White Earth Reservation, but she moved to the city in 1926, uh, particularly to find work, which is a common story, not just for White Earth Ojibwe people or Ojibwe people, but indigenous people, you know, across the country moving to spaces where employment was at least appeared to be more accessible um, than it would be on reservation lands. And Winnie Jordan is, I think, so critical to the story because of the ways that she moved over the decades through informal organizing, particularly in Native homes, uh, to very formalized, visible kind of institutional organizing that the Native community was doing in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, 
and the role that she continually held both in those informal and those formal spaces really points to the way that the intertribal community of Minneapolis was shifting not just from you know, supporting themselves, but also trying to hold the city and the state accountable for providing resources to urban Native people newly arrived and those who had been there for a long time, uh, particularly because there was such a lack of support and resources available that were culturally specific, culturally appropriate, culturally sensitive for Native people. Winnie Jourdain really moved through these spaces. She opened her home frequently. Um, she had a brief period where she and her husband moved away to Iowa, and then she returned uh, to the city in the late 1930s. And from then on, she her house was pretty much known as like the place you go to. She's she provides meals. If you need a place to stay, you can you can stay. Uh, her daughter has recounted many times in many different interviews, you know, growing up with there always being guests in the house, which is a very Ojibwe thing. I think it's also a very native thing to provide space for visitors and to support them while they try and get on their feet. Um, but she also became very involved in organizing in institutions that previously hadn't really made distinctions between native people and in particular people of color in the city of Minneapolis. And she did so in really interesting ways where she pushed the conversation um, almost to the point of, in some cases, upholding what non-Native, particularly white Minneapolitans, expected of Native people um, to to get donations, to get space secured first in churches for things like sewing groups, their fundraisers, uh, which then were brought back to the community. Mm. Um, and, And she used a lot of that to make herself visible, to make the community visible. And then she moved into community centers and she moved into, you know, citywide committees that were super invested in exploring the Indian problem without actually providing solutions. And in that way, she, alongside many other native people were able to push and say, well, you keep saying these are the problems we've told you the problems are we don't have access to good housing. We don't have access to good employment. We don't have access to health care, good education for our children that isn't discriminatory. Our children are being targeted by school officials. We're being targeted by, you know, biased, prejudiced, bigoted people in the city because we're Native. uh, And we need support and we need space for ourselves. And I think particularly she positions this longer history of moving to the city purposely prior to World War II and what happens over the decades that follow. Emily Peake is a slightly different story because she was born in Minneapolis about six years after her parents had moved to the city. Um, And her story is much different, but also very similar to, to Winnie's story because the Peak household was also one of those houses that people came to. They stayed in, they got food, they ran sewing clubs out of their house, they ran political organizations out of their house. And so Emily Peak grew up as kind of like this first generation of urban Ojibwe who was born in the city, who knew the city really well, and who also had this longer experience of what organizing looked like Mm. in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. Her involvement in the community 
really begins in the 1950s when she returns home from serving in the Coast Guard. And she is able to very quickly jump in to the same spaces that her mother, Louise Peak had worked in. Um, Louise Peak had, outside of providing her home, again, for sewing clubs, which reappear consistently as a way that Ojibwe women supported one another in the community at large. She also, uh, Louise Peak also was very involved in local neighborhood community centers. And so Emily was very quickly able to kind of slide into those spaces, volunteer. She joined a number of citywide committees, uh, state committees on urban Indian issues, and she became very well versed in the conversations that were happening around Native people. And through that, she worked with other urban Native people who had been there perhaps a bit longer um, than those who were newly arriving in the 1950s and 60s to begin pushing for an Indian center itself. And in fact, Emily Peak was involved in the founding of the Upper Midwest American Indian Center, uh, which was incorporated in the 1960s, but had been an idea in the late 1950s. And from there, Emily Peak remains connected to Upper Midwest. She remains connected to the founding of the Minneapolis American Indian Center, as was Winnie Jourdain and a number of other uh, Ojibwe women, as well as Dakota women. Um, and both Peak and Jourdain really kind of highlight, I think, the way that Native women were moving through spaces in ways that are easily misread as uh, pro-assimilationist or as perhaps, you know, not being as activist-driven as particularly people in AIM were, which is what a lot of people, I think, expect. Their work was very much about finding those little holes to go into and then push and push and push for urban Native visibility and for support, both financially and also, you know, through the city acknowledging that Native people existed um, in the city and that that did not mean that they were somehow less Native, mm -hmm. um, that their needs weren't also deeply tied to tribal sovereignty, to culture, to language, to traditions. And that these things could exist in Minneapolis at the same time. Uh, but they did it in such a way that it was really under the radar, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, for, for a long time, and in particular growing up in Minneapolis, like I never heard about these women. I did hear about many activists in the late 60s and 70s, but I never heard about these women in particular. Uh, despite the fact that both of them had houses very, very close to where I grew up. Um, and by examining their histories and their involvement in the organizing of Minneapolis Native community, we're able to see the multiple ways that Native people resisted settler colonialism and its expectations, and how Native women often utilized gendered expectations by the settler colonial state, uh, but also used that to uphold and reinforce in this case, Ojibwe culture, tradition, and expectations of responsibility to community in a way that not just supported urban Ojibwe people, but supported all tribal people who were coming to call Minneapolis home or were returning to home. You know, you mentioned that um, Winnie Jordan and, and Emily Peake are not necessarily individuals who have been discussed. And, and even, you know, you know that, you know, these are stories that you had not heard about, even the fact that you lived down the road from them. I'm curious, uh, this is sort of a methods question. I mean, how did you um, 
come uh, to hear their histories or to come to understand uh, and start that research process? I mean, where did that thread for you start? Uh, That thread for me started when I was reading Brenda Child's book, Holding Our World Together, uh, which is on Ojibwe women and community survival. And her her last Mm -hmm. chapter in that book focused on Minneapolis. Um, And it had, it took a much longer chronological look than I had previously seen. A lot of the literature focuses on, as I said, that those very important years in the 1960s and Mm -hmm. 1970s. Um, But when I was reading Child's chapter as an undergraduate student, it suddenly, it sparked that there, there was this whole other story that wasn't being told, particularly because the urban native community of Minneapolis loves its activists. Um, but these women hadn't been considered activists. They, I don't believe, would have considered themselves activists by by any means. Um, and in particular, Jordan was mentioned, Peak was mentioned briefly in that chapter. And I wanted to know more about who about who these women were, what they did, um, particularly because as I began researching, their names just kept appearing over and over and over again. Um, And it became very clear to me that there are certain individuals who were very invested in community organizing, uh, but they, for many different reasons, are not necessarily visible in the archives, which means they're not necessarily visible in the literature, unless you're really specifically looking for them. Um, I, I'm curious, I mean, you sort of mentioned a, a little bit about this, um, but I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about like what, what this community building looked like, right? And, and, and so much of the work of Winnie Jordan and Emily Peake was about sort of preserving um, Ojibwe identities. Um, so I'm curious, could you talk a little bit more about, you know, what did it look like, what they were doing? Yeah, my favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> um, the, the most visible way that you can see Uh, Native women, Ojibwe women in particular, organizing in the early to mid 20th century is really through sewing clubs. Um, In Minneapolis, South Minneapolis in particular, there were a number of clubs that appeared over the years and Peake and Jordan, both uh, Emily Peake's mother, Louise Peake, and Emily Peake, who had memories of of these clubs being held in their dining room. Um, They were both involved in these clubs. The first sewing club that we really see in the archives is the Sakate Club, which is Ojibwe translates to sunshine. Um, And this was a group of native and non-native women who came together. They sewed quilts, um, clothing, and then they would socialize, obviously, around, around, the table that they're working at, but they'd also then uh, sell their their products, if you will, mm-hmm. um, and use that money to support Native families in need, um, to, to provide Native families in need with clothing, winter clothing, to provide eyeglasses to Native children whose families couldn't afford them, um, and to host these kinds of large like fundraiser benefit dinners uh, in which they they really played, I think, in a lot of ways on non-native expectations of Indianness. Um, they would have native dancers, and they would really play that up, but in a way that allowed them to take in money so that they could continue to support the community financially, 
but also the support that was happening in Sakate socially uh, was extremely important. I think particularly for Winnie Jourdain, who joined prior to that brief move to Iowa with, with her husband and her children. Um, she had been involved in Sakate. She became reinvolved when she returned. Um, and many women who were involved in Sakate and the clubs that I'll mention briefly, uh, they talk about it being a space where they didn't feel lonely, where they felt like supported. It was really a way for Native women to interact with one another in a space where Native people interacting was by no means expected or wanted or desired, particularly because the goal was to treat Native people as assimilated peoples in, in the city of Minneapolis who were just like every other racial or ethnic group. Um, and Native people really strongly resisted that. Sakate in the post-war years, founded a junior club called Nagwab, uh, which stands for rainbow. And this was all younger Ojibwe women. And I think the relationship between Sakate and Nagawab that you see is this transmission of cultural knowledge happening. And Louise Peak kind of acted as the, the, you know, advisor from Sakate to this junior club. Um, and they hosted a number of events specifically between these two clubs where they taught, you know, younger native women, particular crafts, how, how to build things with birch bark, weave mats. Um, they often, you know, had conversations around language, uh, which are certainly things that I don't think people expect to see happening in like the years immediately following World War II. Um, but it was very much about passing on knowledge and allowing this knowledge to exist in an urban space. Now, both of these clubs, it's not entirely clear when they kind of disintegrate. Um, but in the early 1950s, maybe around 1953, I believe, uh, you see a new club pop up. And it's the Broken Arrow Service Guild, which is perhaps uh, one of the longest running sewing clubs. It, it existed well into the 90s. Um, and Winnie Jourdain was was very, very much involved with this. She was likely one of the co-founders of this, mm. this, this new sewing group, uh, which is the first time we see the transition from organizing in people's houses into church spaces because there were just there were too many people um, and they needed they needed more space. And so they they worked to kind of um, gain that support from churches and then very quickly moved into local neighborhood centers uh, where they had even more space and were also able to then get involved with other programming that community centers were doing to push for things like Indian programs, which is a very vague term that essentially meant, you know, the center was going to focus on providing activities and clubs for Native youth and for their parents, though the, the youth clubs tended to be much more uh, popular than the kind of adult programs that they offered. Um, and from there, it just kind of snowballed into separate programming that they wanted in spaces that were specifically for Native people. Um, and certainly Native people, but also non-Native people, because a huge part of their whole goal was to preserve tribal identities and cultures um, and to provide space for Native people in the city, but also to educate non-Native people about who they were as a way, I think, to kind of 
explain why Native people needed these spaces, why it was important for Native people to have an Indian center and to have clubs that specifically taught, you know, Native kids traditional arts or language or history in a different way. Um, And why, even in a city like Minneapolis, the lack of that really meant that Native people were struggling to feel like they had space in the city. Um, The sewing clubs, I think, are, for me, the most interesting part of of the organizing. But there were other forms, um, you know, stretching from the 1920s on. Uh, In particular, there was political organizing. And I briefly talk about, um, I believe, in the chapter, um, but certainly in my broader project, the the work of the Twin City or Twin Cities Chippewa Club, which was a political organization, Mm. uh, which also operated sometimes out of the peak household. Um, And this political club was really about giving urban Ojibwe people representation in Uh, tribal politics, which I think is really profound, given the fact that this was all happening in an era where it was assumed if you moved to the cities, you were severing ties to the reservation, to to tribal politics themselves. And so for this urban Ojibwe political group to exist and then persist in some form Mm -hmm. uh, well well past World War II, it really kind of hints at, at the determination of Ojibwe people to maintain um, both, you know, cultural identities, but political identities and ties to home reservations uh, in a way that I think is really underexplored. And you, and you know, sort of by the middle, by the middle of in late 1960s, you know, the indigenous population of Minneapolis is, is continues continuing to grow. Um, this is also a period of time when community organizers are also seeking to establish those permanent physical centers that could help to address uh, the many needs, as you, as you just pointed out, and, and community programs, right? Um, I'm curious if you see, you know, uh, differences of organizational tactics uh, in this time period, right? Like what makes this period of community organizing unique to sort of those previous decades of organization? And, and how does this push for, you know, that physical infrastructure help to preserve uh, and embolden community building in the city? Yeah, I think the the organizing that begins taking place in the 1950s and early 1960s um, is really structured around trying to maintain indigenous identities while pursuing and utilizing, you know, institutional support, um, you know, through nonprofits, through charity organizations, through churches, through the city of Minneapolis and the state of Minnesota. Um, and really walking this line between saying, like, we need your support for this. Um, and we also recognize we're entering, you know, this moment where it's becoming very clear that communities of color are being much more vocal mm-hmm. about, about the inequities that exist in, in our communities. Um, and using that momentum to say, we want to maintain who we are as indigenous people. This isn't us being, you know, separatist, uh, which I think a lot of city officials from that point and even well into or well back into the 1920s had kind of envisioned native people saying like, we're native people. We want to be native people in the city as this like separatist kind of 
movement to differentiate themselves from other people in Minneapolis, when in reality, it was about resisting settler colonialism, um, but doing so at a time when, you know, the Native community and other communities of color in Minneapolis were really pushing for the right to determine for themselves what their communities needed, what they looked like, what resources they required to support themselves. And in the 1950s and 60s, the women I write about, they're, they're very, very clearly drawing upon a lot of that momentum to push for, you know, Native visibility in a way that allowed them to say, you know, we are going to maintain who we are, whether or not you support us. But, you know, you might as well support us doing this. You might as well, you know, give us money through grants to support employment programs that are run by Native people so that they aren't shuffled around between employment agencies in the city who don't know how to handle Native people who may have been recently arrived. So therefore, the city wasn't sure, you know, if they could even get services uh, there was a lot of question around who was going to support urban Native people. Was it going to be the federal government, the state, the city? And this left urban Native people, you know, just kind of wandering the city in search of services that understood or felt like they could actually provide support, which often then was very much colored by uh, expectations of what Indian people uh, were. And so for the Native community at this time, became very clear very quickly that having, you know, an Indian center, a sole community center that was for Native people would allow Native people to do the work of providing for themselves. Um, and I think, you know, one of the biggest parts of that was being able to control the, the programming, the resources, the social services. But another part of it was making very clearly, making very clear, excuse me, that there is a native community here and it's actually very large. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, there's discrimination happening that has to be addressed and the physical creation of an Indian center really, I think was the community's stance, whether it was from, you know, these older generations like Emily Peak and Winnie Jourdain or the more recently arrived generations mm -hmm. to say, we are here, we are vibrant. We are going to maintain who we are. Um, and this is not something that has to be a bad thing. This is something that we are sharing with you. This is who we are. And we're not going anywhere. Um, this, this is space that we are carving out for ourselves in this city so that we can exist as Indigenous peoples in a space that was not really designed to address who we were as, as tribal people. Yeah, seeing that sort of shift over the 60s and, and, and knowing sort of you know, where the story goes, not to get ahead of ourselves, because right. Um, but I, I'm curious, I mean, a lot of the listeners probably, and as you noted at the beginning of this interview, right, like, do associate Minneapolis with um, AIM and the American Indian movement. What I what I think your essay does, and, and what I love about the essay, right, is that it helps demonstrate that this was, in many ways, this like multiple decade process of community building and, and in community preservation. And I know this isn't inherently part of the essay, but I suspect it's part of a larger project. But I'm wondering if you might be willing to discuss how this sort of this earlier history, the history that you're focusing on uh, in this essay, um, can help us to better understand the rise of the American Indian movement in the same city just, a, you know, just a few, few, few years later. Certainly, I think that 
One of the most important things to understand about the earlier organizing that that I talk about and the organizing that AIM is doing is that first it's coming from two vastly different experiences Mm -hmm. of adjusting to urban space. So you have, you have the peak family, you have the Jordan family Mm -hmm. been there for a very long time and they have accumulated a certain kind of knowledge about how the city works Mm -hmm. and also how to work within institutions that are not designed for native people. And a lot of the members of AIM were newly arrived, of course, formerly incarcerated, um, and were certainly, you know, very influenced by the politics of the moment. Uh, but they also were existing in this space where there was Native organizing happening prior to their to their creation. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, it allowed in particular native women to move between institutional spaces and what is typically deemed, you know, the more radical direct action activism of the American Indian movement. And you see this a lot, I think, in the work of women who are involved in AIM, the way that they applied for grants to fund survival schools and how they did a lot of the behind the scenes work, which I also think is vastly understudied. Um, But they're doing in some ways the same kind of work that Native women were doing uh, to to build up programs and social services and Indian centers uh, prior to the creation of AIM. Now, there is tension in the community between these different methods of providing support, of organizing. Um, but I think many AIM members acknowledge that there was perhaps an imperfect structure in place or many imperfect structures um, in place to support the native community. And they envisioned something much larger Mm -hmm. as did the people who were organizing, um, you know, the upper Midwest American Indian center and the division of Indian work. Uh, They were all envisioning something much bigger. Um, And through that, I think the community was able to push forward in ways that, perhaps would not have been possible if Native women hadn't been organizing perhaps a little invisibly behind the scenes for decades leading up, uh, particularly because they knew how the the system worked. Mm -hmm. And they were able to move through those spaces in a way that, in particular, men of AIM, just they, they weren't able to do because the city itself was responding so negatively to the American Indian movement and and the activism that they were pursuing. Um, In that way, I think you see these larger traditions of activism happening. And again, the women that I write about wouldn't consider themselves Mm -hmm. activists. I personally do, particularly because of how much they were resisting settler colonialism. Um, But their activism is so much different than AIM that it sometimes seems like two separate things when Mm -hmm. they're they're intricately linked in a lot of ways. Um, and you can certainly see AIM members talking about Emily Peak and Winnie Jordan. And Emily Peak and Winnie Jordan, for instance, also talked about AIM. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a lot of ways, through both of these different methods, you create the kinds of institutions in 
the American Indian community in Minneapolis today that exist, the many centers, the services, the programs, the education, they come out of both both of these different kinds of organizing. Yeah. Um, well, well, Sasha, this has been an absolutely wonderful conversation, and I'm, I'm grateful that you, you've given your time to discuss this this essay with me. Um, before we wrap things up, though, I, I want to make sure to give you an opportunity to share with our listeners, you know, maybe some glimpses into what you might be working on. You know, is this part of a larger project? Uh, what, what do you have underway? This is part of a larger project. <laughs> um, I'm currently at work on my first manuscript, uh, which is tentatively titled Making a Home in the City, White Earth Ojibwe Women and Community Organizing in the 20th Century, uh, which does a really deep dive into examining uh, the creation, well, not the creation, but the strengthening of an urban Indian community in Minneapolis from the 1920s through the 1980s and the ways that White Earth Ojibwe women organized community specifically through Ojibwe practices, understandings of community and responsibility and their roles in supporting uh, community. Uh, and it's it's very similar to the chapter, except much, much more in depth uh, with a lot more explanation on the creation of, you know, the Indian Center, the Minneapolis American Indian Center, the creation of, you know, Indian education curriculum in the Twin Cities um, and and the ways that Ojibwe women moved through the city over the 20th century to, to create a lot of the institutions that are most important to the community to mm. this day. Uh, well, that sounds spectacular. I can't wait uh, until it's out and We'll make we'll we'll make sure to invite you back out here when 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 that comes out. But uh, again, thank you so much uh, uh, for sharing your time with us. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Yeah, and just a reminder that the edited collection from the University of Oklahoma Press is titled "Indian Cities: Histories of Indigenous Urbanization." So go out and get a copy today. <laughs>